Welcome to our fifth lesson in our study of the book of Ruth. Uh, We are uh, in Ruth chapter 4 today, and we'll be bringing the book of Ruth to a close. So here's where we are in the book of Ruth as we come to the end. Uh, We are in this last scene in the, the main narrative portion, right? The book is bookended by a prologue and an epilogue. And so we're in this last scene, uh, scene four, we're at the gate. And the the tension in this scene uh, really ends up getting picked up from uh, the end of chapter three, where we learn, hey, there's this other redeemer, this other uh, kinsman redeemer who's closer to uh, Naomi's family than Boaz is. And so uh, what's going to happen uh because as in chapter three, we're led to believe, hey, things are proceeding between Ruth and Boaz, and then this tension gets introduced, and and uh, and the chapter ends in verse eighteen with Naomi saying, uh, Boaz is going to take care of this today. Um, we we are reaching the crescendo of the story, and we know today is the day that we're going to find out what happens, and so. In verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 4, we get the, the setting, um, uh, which is which is at the gate in Bethlehem. And then we have, in verses 3 to 8, the rising action, which really just kind of amounts to a, a courtroom drama. Um, and then we get, uh, somewhat different than the previous chapters, we get three three kind of turning points or climaxes and, and resolutions. And this is because as we're drawing to the end of the story... We're, we're really uh, coming to the end of three different plot lines or, or lines of tension. They're all coming to resolution here at the end of the book. So it shouldn't surprise us that we see them all kind of being tied together here at the end. They're all closely related to one another. Uh, and so we, here we're, we're kind of tying up the, the loose ends and, and bringing to resolution all of that tension that's been building over the previous chapters. Uh, so first there's a, there's a uh, a turning point in resolution to the story of Ruth and Boaz, which is really just the story of of Ruth's security, which is uh, as we we saw in uh, chapter three, that was the the principal uh, problem in chapter three. Uh, Naomi wanted uh, security for Ruth, uh, and so what's going to happen to Ruth? How is she going to find rest in the house of a husband, uh, which is what Naomi wanted for her? Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get resolution to that in in verses nine to twelve. In verses twelve to fifteen, we get resolution to the tension that's been building since chapter one about the story of Naomi's family. Um, the, the 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 book begins with this story of Naomi's family, and she loses everything. And at the end of chapter one, she talks about how she's bitter and empty, and and so we're gonna get resolution to that and see how she is uh, she is blessed and restored. Um, in uh, verses twelve to fifteen, and ultimately that's a that's a, a part of uh, the story of Ruth and Boaz is the the resolution to Naomi's story, and then in verses sixteen and seventeen, and and then again in in uh, verses eighteen to twenty two in the epilogue, uh, so these these two are are tied really closely together. We get uh, a resolution to. Um, how this book fits into the whole story of God's people and purpose in history. Um, is it, that is, in, in this last section of the book, we learn why we should care about Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi's family in the first place. And, and that is repeated then in the epilogue. Now, um, starting in, in verses 1 and 2, we get the setting. Again, the tension is carried over from, from chapter 3. Uh, so we, we know the tension is there's somebody else who could, uh, on better legal grounds, claim to have the right to marry Ruth, the widow of Elimelech's son. And uh, the, the setting that we have is we know that Boaz is going to take care of this matter today. And so we learn that the morning after Boaz has had uh, this conversation with Ruth at the threshing floor, says, Now Boaz went up to the gate 
and sat down there. Now, uh, the gate is, is more than just the, the entryway into the city. It's also right, right inside the city gate would be the place, ba- basically uh, the place that public and legal business uh, is conducted. Um, so Boaz, as he goes up to the gate, uh, he is going there, not because uh, he, he knows that's where, where the, the other kinsman is going to be. He, he, he goes there because that's where the legal proceedings happen. Uh, he's effectively, he's going to the courtroom. Um, he has uh, legal business to take care of, so he goes to the place where legal business is going to be taken care of in the ancient world, and that's the city gate. And he sits down, and sitting down there, and we see sitting down gets repeated over and over again just in these two verses. Sitting down is the, the posture of, uh, of, of legal proceedings. Uh, as you sit down at the gate, that means we're, we're entering into, uh, into court, and we're going to have a, a, a legal case heard. And so you see Boaz sits down, and, and Boaz tells this guy to sit down. And so he sat down, and he took the elders, and they were to sit down, and the elders sat down. So you have this, uh, all of the parties coming together to, to sit and have this legal proceeding. So Boaz goes up to the gate uh, and, and sits down. He's getting ready to, to make his case. Um, but but he still needs all of the, the interested parties there. And here we read, uh, Boaz sat down and behold, the close relative, that is the, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke, that is of whom he spoke in chapter three, was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So we get another occurrence as, as we did in chapter two, of, of this word behold, and, and this the same concept that we saw a couple times in chapter 2. Boaz goes and sits down at the gate, uh, gate, and behold, and this is sort of the Hebrew equivalent of, well, would you look at that? Um, wouldn't you know it? The, as Boaz sits down, the close relative of whom he just happened to have been speaking the previous night was passing by. What a coincidence. He just happened to sit down at the place where the legal proceedings took place, and and he, he needed to get this case about Ruth Heard. And what do you know? The guy who he needed to talk to just happened to show up. What are the chances? Right? This is, again, a, a, a way that the narrator is highlighting God's providential control of the situation. Um, Boaz did not send for this guy. Um, Boaz did not, um, did not uh, concoct something uh, to to get this taken care of. He just goes up to the gate and it just so happens, we're meant to read, and, and God is, is pulling the strings behind this. He's making this happen. It just so happens that the guy he needs to talk to is right there. And so Boaz says, oh, what a coincidence. And he says, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And so he's saying, He's inviting this guy to say, hey, I've got some legal business I'd like to talk to you about. Right. Now, what's really interesting about this is that um, this word friend uh, makes it sound like Boaz is being really chummy with this guy. And, and we know they're related. We don't know what their relationship is, um, but they're in the same family. Um, later, he, he says to this guy that um, Elimelech, our brother... And so, um, is it possible that, that they are brothers to Elimelech? Well, maybe, but it also may just be a, a, a term that they are using to describe a, a family member rather than uh, a, a sibling, strictly speaking. But he calls him friend. And so we're like, oh, that's nice. He's being, you know, Boaz is such a nice guy. He's, everybody, he's probably friends with everybody. But the funny thing is that, this, so this is the way that the, the, the New American Standard Bible Transla- translates it. But the Hebrew, uh, really, and if you have the New American Standard, you may see this in your footnote, the Hebrew is just a certain one. Turn aside a certain one. Sit down here. Now, this is uh, probably a, a Hebrew way of, 
of saying some uh, uh, of addressing somebody without having to say their name. Um, some places, especially commentaries that I looked, this is effectively the Hebrew way of saying Mr. So-and-so. Um, of course, Boaz's relative, Boaz knows the guy's name, but the fact that he doesn't use it here and that the narrator doesn't tell us, that should be an indication to us of something, Right? Remember, you think back when we when we learn people's names. It tends to be that those people are are important, and when they speak, they're especially important. So this guy ends up speaking, but we never learn his name, which means he ends up being important to the narrative. But it's not especially important that we know what his name was uh, or or who he was, and that should tell us something about his his long term relevance to the story. Right off the bat, we learn that. The, the guy that we're really concerned about is, in the credits to, uh, to, to Ruth, is just Mr. So-and-so. Probably not going to end up being all that important in the long run. And so already we get a little bit of an indication of where this is going. Um, you think about it like this. You pretend you've been cast in a movie and you're all excited. You're getting your big break into Hollywood. And you ask the director, so, so who am I playing? What's my character? And the director replies, oh, you're playing a uh, woman on a bicycle or townsperson number four. Right? You can be pretty sure that there's not going to be an Oscar headed your way at that point. And I think that's sort of what we're supposed to be to be taking from this. This other guy who's who's really presenting the, the biggest tension point in the story at this point, he doesn't even get a name. And that gives us some indication of how this is going to go down. So Boaz tells him, have a seat. Uh, and and the guy sits down. So they're, they're getting ready to have this legal proceeding, but they can't just have it, the two of them. And so then Boaz goes and he took 10 men of the elders of the city. So 10 of the senior um, men in the city, um, maybe not necessarily just age, but 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 also um, importance and, and prominence, the, the, the men who, who constituted the ruling legal body for the city. He, he, he finds 10 of them and he has them uh, sit down at the gate as well. Now, it's really interesting, the fact that it says that Boaz took 10 men. It makes it sound that like Boaz is, is going and, and dragging them and, and, and placing them exactly where he needs them to be. Uh, I don't think that's what actually is, is going on. But it does give us the impression that Boaz is on a mission, that he really is going to, he's taking this responsibility very seriously, and he's going to make sure that this gets done today. So he goes, he finds these elders, and he says, I need you to come and, and be witness to this legal proceeding that we're going to have. He tells them to sit down, and so they sat down. Again, I don't necessarily think that we're supposed to to take Boaz giving them orders here is anything that means, you know, that Boaz is in charge or that he has more power than them. Um, I think uh, he's he's inviting them to be a part of this legal proceeding. And Boaz, too, is a man of prominence, uh, may, may in fact have been included among this number of the, of the elders. There's probably more than just 10. There's probably a number of them. Uh, and uh, and so he's inviting them to to be witnesses to what is going to happen in this transaction uh, between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. So that's the setting. We're in the courtroom, uh, and there's about to be a courtroom drama that is going to bring all of these different lines of tension, Ruth and Boaz and Naomi's family, and, and, and the significance of the entire story. All of them are going to come to a head here in this, in this courtroom drama. So then Boaz begins, and he said to the closest relative, the other kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Wait a minute, what? Naomi has, has land to sell? Why haven't we heard about this before? Well, a couple things to, to know here. Um, we're not told why Naomi didn't act on this sooner. Um, we don't know any of the details behind that. And 
And rather than us trying to to figure out exactly what may have been going on in Naomi's mind, it's probably better for us to just take the narrative at face value. For some reason, this is all happening now. Uh, and so uh, rather than um, trying to, to speculate about what Naomi may or may not have done, um, we, we just need to accept, all right, she had a piece of land uh, and it had belonged to Elimelech, her husband. So she had somehow inherited this land. I mean, Elimelech had died, her sons had died. So ownership of the land had fallen to her as the, the, the last uh, living relative of, of this family. Now, technically, Naomi can't sell the land. Uh, she can't sell it in the sense that she she can't permanently transfer ownership of the land. Uh, the land allotments in Israel were were hereditary. They were given to families, and, and they were a big deal. They're permanent. Um, but what she could sell, and what is probably meant and implied by, by this word uh, and the way it's used in Hebrew, is she could sell the rights for who could farm the land and benefit from its produce for, for a period of time. See, every 50 years during the year of Jubilee, all the land reverted back to its, uh, its ancestral owners, um, and, and they all received those farming rights back if they had sold them. Uh, so, but for a period of time, you could sell the rights to, to use the land. It's this fun, this fun word that I literally just learned this week, this week, usufruct. Um, it's the, the, the right to, to use the land and benefit from its fruit. So it seems like what happened is that Elimelech probably sold the land uh, or sold the rights to farm the land to somebody before they left for Moab. Uh, and, and probably somebody outside of the family uh, was, was farming this land and using it. So now Elimelech has died, his sons had died, ownership of the land has passed to Naomi, but the right to farm the land still belonged to somebody else. So, so when it says that Naomi was selling the piece of land, what it probably means is that she is looking for the, the kinsmen redeemers to do their role as kinsmen redeemers to buy back that land, to buy back the, the, the rights to, to use and farm and benefit from that land from somebody outside the family so that it gets back into the family. She does not have the means to do it. And even if she did, she does not have the means to work the land and benefit from it. So she's calling on the kinsmen redeemers to purchase the farming rights from this third party so that it can be back in the family, and that the fruit of the land can be used to, uh, to care for and, and benefit Naomi. So, Boaz goes on, says, Naomi is, is selling this land, I thought to inform you, oh, Mr. So-and-so, uh, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, and if you will redeem it, and so this is the, the, the connection here, is that when he says buy... What he means is redeem, uh, buy it back, buy those rights back for the family. Um, buy it before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. So Boaz and Mr. So-and-so are the only kinsmen redeemers for this family. And if, if, the, if Mr. So-and-so is not going to redeem the land... If he's not going to buy it back uh, for the benefit of the family, then then Boaz will. And he says, I want you to know that this is the case. Um, and so if, if you want to do it, go for it. If not, I'm, I'm going to do it. And right away, uh, the, uh, the other kinsman redeemer agrees. He says, yeah, okay, I will redeem it. And for us, that's kind of disappointing because we're like, well, but that's not the way this story is supposed to go, right? And so there's more tension building as we're like, well, we know that's not where this is supposed to go. So what's going to happen, right? We're also confused because so far all they're talking about is the land. They're talking about redeeming land. But in chapter three, 
what was going to be redeemed was not the land, it was Ruth. And so we know that something more is is coming. Then verse 5, Boaz continues and effectively says to the the other kinsman redeemer, well, I wasn't done yet. This this other guy was was so quick to want to redeem the land, uh, Boaz hasn't finished everything he had to say. He says, well, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up a name for the deceased on his inheritance. Now, this verse is one of the most confusing verses in the entire book. And um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to offer you uh, my my opinion on what's happening here. But the bottom line is it's not entirely clear. I'm going to give you my best guess, having looked at a bunch of different commentaries and 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 uh, and studied the passage. I'm going to give you my best guess as to what's going on. Um, Boaz tells Mister So and So that if he goes through with purchasing the land, that he also has to acquire Ruth the Moabitess. First off, the word acquired doesn't sound quite right to our ears. Um, it, it it feels as if what what's happening is that Ruth is being sold like a slave. Um, that's not at all what's happening. Uh, actually, the word acquire in, in Hebrew, uh, I mean, can mean to buy or to purchase, uh, but it's also a closely related to to the idea of redemption. It's a redemption word. And so I think he's saying, as you uh, are going to redeem the land, so also if you are going to redeem the land, you're going to redeem Ruth with it. Now, we highlighted in the last lesson that the role of kinsman redeemer did not include an explicit legal obligation to any kind of marriage. The kinsman redeemer in his role did not have to marry anybody. Um, that was a that was a different law in Israel. Maybe there was there was overlap in relationship, but simply being being the closest relative, the kinsman redeemer, didn't necessitate any kind of marriage, not legally. And so, there's all sorts of opinions about what exactly is happening. Why does Boaz say you must do this? And and again, having read some of the commentaries, there's not agreement on this, and and we're not told exactly why. But but here's what I think might be happening, and, and, and this is based on some, some of the commentaries I read. It's possible, based on what we've seen of Boaz throughout the book, that where uh, while there's no legal obligation for either man to marry Ruth according to the letter of the law, that the spirit of the law would indicate that the morally responsible and God-honoring thing to do would not only be to redeem the land, but also to marry Ruth in order that Elimelech's family line could be preserved and that those children could inherit the allotment of land. I mean, that, that is what Boaz is, is concerned with. You're going to acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, her husband, and the purpose is, in order to, as a purpose clause, in order to raise up the name of the deceased, that is, her husband, her family, on his inheritance. Now this was, if you go back to Deuteronomy 25, this was one of the purposes of leveret marriage, uh, was that the brother-in-law would seek to raise up a, a, uh, a son, a child, for the deceased, uh, in order that that child, though it's his physical child, might be considered in terms of social and cultural status to be the child of the, the deceased brother and inherit his land as his, uh, as his heir. So Boaz is sort of drawing these, these things together. Um, and Boaz... Uh, perhaps saw that while there's no legal obligation for either he or Mr. So-and-so to marry Ruth, that there was a proper moral obligation 
to do so. See, just because something is not wrong doesn't necessarily make it right. And I, and I think this fits well with what we've seen in Boaz throughout the story, right? He, he throughout, ever, ever since we met him in chapter 2, he's not just been following the bare minimum letter of the law. He's been going above and beyond what the law requires to fulfill the spirit of the law. See, God's law, in the end, is not just a list of do's and don'ts that shows us that we cannot save ourselves because we're unable to fulfill it. It certainly does fulfill that role, right? We learn that from Romans 3.20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one is justified by works of the law. Absolutely. But the law is more than that. It's also a blueprint uh, that God gave his people for what it looks like to love God and love neighbor. Right? We don't naturally drift into uh, what it looks like to love God and love neighbor. So God uh, gave his people uh, guidelines, a blueprint, a, a, a structure uh, to, to train them in what that looks like. And ultimately, it's not the stipulations of the law themselves, it's love for God and neighbor that's the real heartbeat of the law. And in the end, uh, that's an important measure of a person's spiritual health, right? Because it's it's one thing to just say, I don't worship false gods, I follow the commandments. But it's another thing to say, I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's one thing to say, I follow the commandments, I don't murder. But it's another thing to say, I love my neighbor as myself. See, Boaz understands that the commandments themselves point to this greater reality of the law. The true love for God and neighbor, what the New Testament calls the law of love or the law of Christ, is not found in, in uh, mere strict adherence to the prohibitions, right? which is just avoiding things. Don't do this. Don't do this. But it's a positive pursuing of love for God and others. You know, Jesus talks about this, right? If you go to, to Matthew 23 and, and the way that, that Jesus describes what the Pharisees are doing, and specifically Matthew 23, 23, it should be easy to remember, he, he rebukes the Pharisees and he says they're, they're hypocrites because they tithe on their spices, but they neglect what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy. Uh, he says, you, you are following the, the, the letter of the law, but in so doing, you have completely forgotten that the, the, the spirit of the law, the reason you were to tithe, the reason you were to follow all these stipulations was not just to be obedient to it, it was because it was an expression of love for God and neighbor, and you've missed that by just trying to follow the rules. And so I think what we see in Boaz here is he's saying, yeah, you're right. There's no legal obligation for you to, to redeem the land uh, and marry Ruth. But morally, according to the spirit of the law and what it would look like for you to properly love God and neighbor and specifically here family, well, that is what would be expected. That would be the godly thing to do. So maybe there's no legal obligation, but Boaz certainly appears to think that there is a moral obligation as, as an act of worship to God and love for neighbor. Uh, now again, that, that may not be exactly what's happening, but I think that fits well with what we've seen throughout uh, the book. So in light of this, uh, now, how is the kinsman redeemer going to respond? How is Mr. So-and-so going to respond to what Boaz has said? Um, again, th this could be uh, kind of confusing because, wait a minute, why, why doesn't Boaz just marry Ruth? He doesn't, you know, there's no legal obligation for Mr. So-and-so to marry her. Why does he care? And I thought um, th this was 
it's, it's a little confusing, but, but I, want, I want to read to you from a, a brief section from a commentary I wrote. This is Lawson Younger's commentary on, on Ruth. This is what he says at, at this point in the story. As Boaz has presented this, this new information, if you, if you buy the land, the right thing for you to do is to marry Ruth. It's voluntary, but it's the right thing to do. This is what Lawson Younger says. He says, the nearer redeemer, that is Mr. So-and-so, is now publicly caught in an ethical and economic dilemma. He has only three options. He can agree, uh, one, to redeem the field and marry Ruth, and so raise up an heir to inherit the family property of Elimelech. So he'll buy the field. Uh, and Mary Ruth and the children that they have or the child that they have will end up inheriting that field that he just bought. If he does this, he will incur the cost of redeeming the field only to see the property, uh, it's only to see it become the property of the heir he must raise for the line of Elimelech. So he's going to expend the cost to buy this field right now, to buy, to buy the rights right now. That's a cost. And then he's going to incur the cost. He's going to marry Ruth and he has to take care of her and and Naomi as well. And then ultimately, he's not going to end up benefiting from the field because it's going to go to this other heir. So he's he's going to be out a lot of money on this. So that's option one. Option two, he can agree to redeem the field but ignore the pledge to marry Ruth. Now, Again, it's voluntary, so he's legally allowed to do this. He can redeem the field and just say, I'm not doing this thing with Ruth. But if he does this, he will cast himself in an unfavorable light as one who is willing to meet family obligations only when they benefit him and do not cost him. Number three, he concede his rights as redeemer to the next redeemer, Boaz. So what does he decide to do? Well, just as quickly as he agreed to buy the land when he thought that, hey, this is a great business move for me, now he, he walks back, he, makes the, he, he, he reverses that decision equally quickly. The closest relative says, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Right? Um, he won't do it. And, and the reason he gives, because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. He recognizes that he, he cannot redeem the land and marry Ruth without incurring a cost that is unacceptable to him. See, it seems like in his mind, the field is only a good investment if he gets to keep it for himself and maybe his children from another marriage or from his current marriage uh, are... Uh, going to inherit that property. But if he must marry Ruth and raise a child uh, with Ruth for Elimelech's line and then have that child inherit the land, it's going to cost too much in the long run. He refuses to do it. So it seems like he's thinking uh, along uh, purely economic lines. Now again, in a sense... He's entirely within his rights to to do what he does. He tells Boaz, redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption. I cannot redeem it. He's entirely within his legal rights to do that. Uh, He is, in a sense, making a wise economic decision. But he's not necessarily making the right moral decision. So on the other hand... Boaz is apparently more than willing to incur the cost of redemption. He's willing to incur the cost of not only purchasing this land back, but also marrying Ruth and all of the the implications that that has for his life and his family. And he's, he's willing to do it because not just because the law demands it, 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 it doesn't. He's doing it because that's the right way. It's the crucial way that he can demonstrate the kindness and loyalty of God to Ruth and Naomi. This is this ultimate expression of, of God's chesed, right? His, 
his covenant loving kindness that he's been showing throughout the book and now ultimately is willing to do. He's willing to incur something that is going to cost him a lot and in a sense economically is not going to end up benefiting him much because it's the right thing to do. It's the spirit of the law rather than just the letter of the law. It's not the bare minimum he has to do to be acceptable. It's the way that he can show that he loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that he loves his neighbor as himself. Then verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So this is sort of a, a parenthesis in uh in the the narrator's uh, story, he's he's saying, now, by the way, this thing is going to happen, and this was a long time ago. So again, we see that this is probably written considerable time after um, the the events uh, that are described here, because uh, the narrator has to explain to his readers a custom that apparently was no longer in practice in Israel at the time that this was written. Right? It says this is what happened, but but listen, you have to understand exactly why this is happening. Um, part of the business transaction uh, was that one party would remove his sandal and give it to the other party. And some have speculated this was um, some form of, of uh, visibly showing that the party that was receiving the rights or, or the purchase of property was stepping into the role uh, of the person who was selling we're not entirely sure about that, but but um, it should comfort us that the the narrator does not expect that his readers were familiar with it either, so he has to explain it. Uh, and so then we see this the 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 Mr. So and so the the closer uh, kinsman redeemer, um, not just saying that he is going to surrender his rights, but then but then legally. Uh, through this mode of attestation, this kind of legal gesture, um, ceding it to Boaz. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. And so Mr. So-and-so then fades away from the picture. He surrenders his right to redeem the property and Ruth with it to Boaz, which is exactly what we've probably wanted to have happen the whole time. And uh, what's really interesting is is um, in verse five, Boaz described part of the the role of of uh, the the redeemer in this particular situation would be to raise up a name for the line of Elimelech, and. And now, as as Mister So and So recedes from the story, uh, as one commentator has 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 put it, since uh, this guy refused to restore the name of the dead to his inheritance, he himself has no name. It's just an interesting way that they, that they've gone about doing this in the narrative that his refusal to do what was right. Uh, and uh, and protect himself and, and maybe protect his family and his name has actually resulted in him having no name in the Bible. It's kind of an ironic juxtaposition. So that now, um, in, in a sense, that, 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 that that's a climactic point, right? We've seen, okay, this guy has now ceded the rights to Boaz. And now we're reaching this series of, of three kind of quick uh, climactic points in the story and, and resolutions that will go from verse 9 to verse 17. Now we move to, to verses 9 to 12, and this is the, the, the climax and resolution for the plot line that really began in chapter 3, verse 1, with Naomi seeking security or rest for Ruth, and, and by that she means marriage. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged 
to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon. Uh, so, so Boaz said, I've, I bought the rights to all of the property that they, that they had owned and I'm going to redeem it. Uh, I'm going to buy it back from this third party who has, uh, who has been farming it since they left for Moab, seems to be the case. And moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon. This is actually the first time that we, that we learned that Ruth was married to Mahlon. He wasn't, uh, she wasn't married to Kilion. So it's the first time we, we, we hear that. Moreover, I've acquired, or, or I am also redeeming, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. This is what the, what the other kinsman redeemer wouldn't do and why he has no name in the book. Um, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. Uh, Boaz is concerned about maintaining this family line, that this family line is going to have a place uh, among the, the people of Bethlehem. You are witnesses today. Well, again, we, we notice that, that Boaz is not necessarily here talking about um, buying the land and, um, and uh, marrying Ruth because of how much he he has this passionate romantic love for her you know that may have been the case but we're not told that what is foregrounded for us what's highlighted for us in the narrative is boaz fulfilling this godly moral responsibility to show kindness and mercy and covenant loyalty to this family um it, it's much deeper than just the the passion of being in love. Um, it, it's not that that's not a, an important feature, but that's not primary here in the story, right? And it is interesting that here we in, in verse nine we hear about the land, but this is really the last time that we hear about the land, right? The land gets introduced in verse three. We hear about it uh, last in verse nine because the land was never really the issue. The issue is the family. Right, the issue is is the family, the name of the deceased, uh, the the continuance of this family line, um, that had appeared in in chapter one to be, to be basically on on the way out with, with Elimelech and his sons dying and Naomi past childbearing age. It appeared to be, uh, everything was was going downhill. That family was going to die out. Um, and and the name forgotten from from Israel and um, and Ruth accompanies Naomi back and and things pick up from there and, and so um, but but Ruth is now uh, going to be secure she's she has found that security in marriage Boaz is is taking her and um, and we know that this is not uh, Ruth is, is not thinking, oh man, I just got sold, right? She had gone in the last chapter and proposed to Boaz. And so this is the legal uh, account of how Boaz came to have the right to marry Ruth as opposed to, to this other kinsman redeemer. And then at this point, if we move to uh, the next verses, we see that there's a blessing for uh, for Boaz and Ruth that is spoken by the townspeople. So kind of in response as Boaz has, has made this, this last speech uh, legally uh, saying, this is what I have done and you are witnesses today that I have done this. Uh, and, and then it says, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. And then they offer a, a blessing to, to Boaz and Ruth. So they affirm, yes, we have seen this happen. This is legally binding now. And then they, they offer this blessing. They pray for Ruth and Boaz. And, and they say, uh, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. So the woman who is coming into your home obviously is Ruth. And they say, may May the Lord make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. 
And I think what's interesting here is that, remember, Ruth, and, and, and Buzz has just said it in, in the previous verse, Ruth is identified as the Moabitess, right? She's, she's a woman of Moab. Um, this, is, this is not, generally speaking, in Israelite history, the women of Moab are not favorable characters. And here, these people uh, who, who are observing this proceeding say, May may Ruth become like the the mothers of the tribes of Israel, Rachel and Leah being the the wives of Jacob, by whom Jacob became the father of the twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Israel. So Ruth is being linked in this blessing to some of the most important women in the history of Israel. They are the mothers of the nation. And it's remarkable that that they that all of these people, the elders, the townspeople, would would make that link. And I think it's more than just them, you know, saying here are some really some really great women who uh, had a lot of kids, and we hope Ruth has a lot of kids like them. I think it's more than that. I think the fact that that these women were so important in the formation of the house of Israel itself and, and the tribes and the nation means that they recognize that Ruth, though she is a Moabitess, Ruth is a true Israelite. Uh, that, that, that Ruth is not, is not identified first and foremost by her birth ethnicity, but by her loyalty for uh, for t- towards the God of Israel and the people of Israel, um, that that she they're praying that she this Moabitess who has demonstrated herself to be in many ways probably a truer Israelite than most at the time, uh, that she would become uh, the uh, the the mother of a great line that um, that she would build up for Boaz a house that is a a dynasty, a line that would be like the line uh, that came from Rachel and Leah, the the nation of Israel. Now, closely linked to that is the next thing that they say. So they say, may may Ruth uh, become like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, may she um, become the, the, the matriarch of a great, uh, a great family line uh, through you, Boaz, and may you achieve wealth. And what's really interesting here is this word wealth is the same word that was used to describe Boaz uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, and then also Ruth. And also Ruth in chapter 3 and verse 11, uh, this idea of excellence or noble character or uh, wealth or prosperity or prominence. It's the same word. And so um, these these two people who are both described with this word, the, the Hebrew word is hayil, so um, wealth or, or prominence or nobility or, or excellence, these two people who are described that way, now the people uh, bless them and, and sort of, I think, recognizing that this is indeed their character, uh, praise that they are going to uh, achieve that prosperity and, and, uh, and demonstrate their excellence in Ephrathah, that's the clan, uh, Ephrathah, and become famous in Bethlehem. Now, if you think back to chapter 1, we saw these, these uh, places linked together before, at the very beginning of chapter 1. And actually, if you, if you look through, there's a lot of parallels between the way that chapter 1 and chapter 4 are structured. And in fact, it, it's, it's almost like chapter 4 is the absolute reversal of everything that happened in chapter one, but here we see as, as chapter four is beginning to draw to a close, we see the mentions of Ephrathah and Bethlehem, just like we saw at the beginning 
of chapter one when it talked about uh, Elimelech and his family, right? That that Elimelech was a man uh, of Bethlehem in Judah, uh, and we also uh, see that's it's in verse one, and in verse two that Elimelech and his family were Ephrathites. They were from Ephrathah, the clan of Ephrathah in in Bethlehem. And remember, we talked about this and said that the, this is not just sort of random. Uh, the, the narrator saying, you know, they're from this clan and they're from this town, um, that, that those two things link together, the clan Ephrathah of the tribe of Judah and the place Bethlehem, uh, that those two things linked together uh, had royal overtones, uh, that we see it in, in Micah 5, 2, this very prominent place where these two things are, are put together to talk about a ruler that is going to come out of Bethlehem from the clan of Ephrathah, uh, who is going to be in the line of David and who's going to shepherd Israel. And, and we see then in the New Testament, this gets picked up as a prophecy about the birth of Christ. Uh, and so particularly for the, for the readers at the time, they would know, uh, likely, Micah's prophecy that this is, this is where the Messiah is going to be from. And, and so may well uh, be, be able to pick up that this blessing is not just a blessing by the people uh, saying, we want you to become you know, famous and prosperous and wealthy in, uh, in our clan, in our town, but that their blessing may actually be, though they don't realize it, a prophecy about what's going to happen through this line. And as they bless Boaz and Ruth and, and, and are asking the Lord that Ruth will build up a house for Boaz, like Rachel and Leah built up a house for, for Jacob, for Israel, um, and, and, then, and then link that together with this, this royal language of, of the place of Bethlehem and the clan of Ephrathah uh, in the tribe of of Judah begin to, to, to see that there's something more going on here. Um, that this, that this person, this line is really important. And that's highlighted even more, I think, by, by the next statement. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So again, we have this link, Judah, Ephrathah, Bethlehem, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So again, the, the, the issue is, is never been just the land, it's the offspring, it's the family. It's the family line that God is going to work through uh, Ruth and Boaz and bring about through their union. That's the issue. It's the house. It's the house, the family. Um, that's been the issue the whole time. What's going to happen to the family? And it is interesting that of, uh, of, of all the, the, the people to compare them to, um, Judah and Tamar, if you read in Genesis 38, that's not a particularly great story. It's not one that's filled with virtue. Um, and I'll let you go read that on your own time. But it, it's, uh, Ruth and Boaz are in a lot of ways the polar opposites of Judah and Tamar uh, in terms of their, of their virtue, their character, their godliness, um, and so and and we see that through Judah and Tamar, God has raised up a line, and and, and we're going to learn in in a few verses that Perez is actually a great 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 grandfather of of Boaz. I think maybe like seven greats or something like that. And um, and so, just as God blessed Judah and Tamar in spite of their uh, their very more morally inappropriate and ambiguous relationship um, that uh, God blessed them with with sons and Perez being being one of them uh, how much more is God going to bless the the union of Ruth and Boaz uh, and again there's there's this royal undertone because uh, when Jacob blesses Judah at the end of of Genesis he says the scepter is not going to depart from Judah. And so it's through Judah's line that the, the king promised to Israel is going to come. 
uh, and so and and uh, Perez being part of that line, and then though we we don't know it explicitly yet, Boaz is going to be part of that line as well. So there we have a a, a resolution to the story of of uh, of Ruth's security. Ruth is going to be secure. She's got a husband. Um, she and Naomi are going to be provided for. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, if this was really a love story about uh, Boaz and Ruth, you might expect this to be the climax. This is the, the, this is the, the, the main resolution that we were looking for, you know, and they lived happily ever after. But it keeps going because that's not the main point of the story. And I think we need to, we need to hear that because what's more important than the love story between Ruth and Boaz are some other things that are going on in the story. Well, now we're going to see in the second turning point in verses 13 to 15 how the Lord is, is going to bring to resolution the, uh, the plot line and the tension that has been building since chapter 1 about what's going to happen to Naomi's family. Um, Naomi's husband and sons had died. She talks about being bitter and empty. Uh, and, and feeling like the Lord has abandoned her. And now we're going to see how, how the Lord brings uh, that and, re- and reverses that uh, and, and actually restores and fills uh, Naomi, though she had uh, felt empty in the past. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. Now this is This is one of the two times in the book that we actually get a very specific action from the Lord. The other was in chapter 1, verse 6, where the Lord brought uh, an end to the famine and gave the people food. Here, we see the Lord enabled her to conceive. Now remember, Ruth had been married for 10 years, and she didn't have a child with with Naomi's son. And, and usually when, when that happens, when we see that thing happening in the Bible, um, that is something specifically that the Lord does. The Lord open and clo- opens and closes the womb. And so now, as, as Ruth uh, marries Boaz, the Lord uh, enables Ruth to conceive. He opens the womb and, and, and causes her to, to conceive. This is not an immaculate conception or anything like that. This is uh, a, a natural conception, uh, and she gave birth to a son. And this is, again, securing this, this family line that uh, was, was in doubt, and in, in a lot of doubt in chapter 1. We didn't know what was going to happen. There seemed to be no hope, and now suddenly there's a son. And then the women said to Naomi, now the women were, were there at the end of chapter one and were saying, is this Naomi? And that's when Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And now the women come back to Naomi and say, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And so where, where Naomi had said, basically, the Lord has left me. Uh, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has greatly afflicted me. Now the women say, the Lord is blessed because he has not left you without a redeemer today. He has not forgotten his covenant loyalty to you. And this is a, this is a reference specifically to Boaz. That God has, has provided for Naomi and done so through Boaz. And may his name become famous in Israel. So, um, echoing the, the, the blessing of the people at the gate. May, may the, the line and the name of Boaz become famous in, in Israel. And again, they too uh, speak better than they know because that's exactly what's going to happen. And may he also be to you a restorer of life. And this is where we get this idea of restoration that, that um, Naomi was, was bitter and empty in chapter 1 and now she is, she is blessed and she is restored. Um, may he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So he, uh, and, and, uh, 
and, and him here, this is a reference to, to the sun. So that um, this sun is uh, a restorer of life to Naomi, this grandson for her. And that he is going to be a sustainer of your old age. He's going to help provide for Naomi in her old age. Uh, and, and it is really interesting here that that uh, when when we we've not heard anything about love between Boaz and Ruth, here the women point out that your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him, and that this this highlights that really the story has been about this love and loyalty between Ruth and Naomi, and that while. Uh, Naomi had at one point said, I have come back empty-handed. And we said, wait a minute, she's got Ruth. Now it becomes obvious that that Ruth, this virtuous Moabite who has become a follower of the God of Israel and has shown herself to be a woman of noble character and excellence, is actually better to Naomi than if she had had seven sons. And that she has for uh, provided for Naomi a son through Boaz. So we see that, that, that this love story between Ruth and Naomi is, is being resolved and, and seeing just how that loyalty has played out and, and that the Lord through, Na, uh, through Ruth has demonstrated himself to be faithful to Naomi. Uh, her kindness and her loyalty has been uh, an exhibition of God's kindness and loyalty to her. And now we get to the, the third turning point or climax and, and the resolution that comes with it, uh, which is the question about why should we care about this, right? Boaz and Ruth, they ended up together. That's nice. They have a kid. That's really great. It seems like Naomi's life has gotten better and the Lord hasn't forgotten her. We're really happy about that. But why does that matter? I mean, surely the Lord did lots of things like this. The Lord has cared meticulously for his people um, for, for all of history. And, and we can all attest to things that the Lord has done in our lives um, that would be encouraging to one another. And, and so is this just supposed to be an encouraging testimony about what the Lord uh, has done? And um, we, we see then that actually this is much more important than just somebody giving testimony of what the Lord has done. It's not that that us giving those testimonies aren't important, but this is something much more central and and crucial to the entirety of God's story. Then Naomi took the child, her grandson, and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And so she's caring for him. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And so they named him Obed. And this is perhaps the key line in the book. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. I gotta be honest, even as I say that, I I get goosebumps. Um, Now we know why this family matters. This family matters because it's David's family. It is the family of the king after God's own heart. It is the family of the king from whom God has established a dynasty and made a covenant that there will always be a descendant of David to sit on the throne. We know that, that the, the, the readers at that time uh, would have been probably after David, but would know that, that David's line, it was from David's line that the Messiah would come. We've been mentioned Micah. 5-2 before, we know from verses like that and others that, that God promised that the king that was going to reign forever, who was going to sit on David's throne forever, uh, was, was going to come from this family line. And so suddenly we see that this is not just a nice story about how God cared for a, a, a widow and her daughter-in-law. This is a story about how God, in the midst of the days of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, was bringing about uh, the line of his king. That even when it seemed like things were the darkest and nobody followed God, that 
that God was still working in all of the details, the littlest details about property transfer in this little town of Bethlehem. He was working in all of the details. Ruth randomly, supposedly, randomly running into Boaz or or uh, Boaz just happening to sit down at the gate when the other kinsman redeemer came by, or happening to show up at the field at the time when Ruth went out to glean, who happened to find herself in Ruth's field. All of these little details, in this time when it appeared that God was not working, God was working, and he was working uh, in, in great detail to bring about his purposes. And that should be an encouragement to us, that even when it seems to us like God isn't doing something, he's actually doing far more than we could imagine to accomplish his purposes for his glory and our joy. And then the book ends with the genealogy, which we, we may think is sort of anticlimactic, but, but in fact, in this epilogue, um, it, it really just is a summary of what we've seen uh, happen, and, and that ultimately this, this genealogy shows that the family line that runs from, from Perez, who's the son of Judah, the one uh, to whom the scepter belongs, the, the tribe that is going to, to be the royal tribe of Israel, that this family line runs from Perez, and Perez was born to Hezron, uh, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Uh, and it's a, it is a reminder that this book ultimately, ultimately, in terms of the way that it fits within the entire grand narrative of Scripture, is not just about how to be virtuous uh, in the midst of, of a godless society. It's not just a, a love story between uh, Ruth and Boaz. It's not even just a love story between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Um, it is a story about how God is bringing his anointed king into the world, how he is going to accomplish his purposes through a king from the line of Judah, from the line of David. And ultimately, as, as we move into, into 1 Samuel after this book, we see that, that David is going to come to the throne, is going to be a man after God's own heart, but even David is not actually the end of the story. That it is from the line of David that God is going to bring his forever king. And it is noteworthy that not just David, but also Boaz, and with Boaz, Ruth, here, then in the genealogy of that forever king, Jesus. And so ultimately, this book is about how God is securing not just uh, a, a ruler, a temporary ruler for Israel in David, but is bringing about through this line, through his meticulous providence in preserving this line in this way, through these people, that he is bringing his forever king, Jesus, to reign.